Good morning, everyone. Uh, today, we are going to be starting a new series in Daniel that Mike is going to be leading us through. Uh, an incredible part of Daniel, though, is that it's a narrative story. Uh, and in light of that, we decided on reading the chapter that we'll be talking about before we dive into the sermon. So I'm going to be reading through Daniel chapter 1. If you'd like to follow along, it'll be on screen as well. Uh, and then Michael will follow and lead us through a sermon on it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of the Lord. And he brought them to the land of Shinar and the house of his God and placed the vessels of the treasury uh, in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent, and competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of wine that he drank. The, they were educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Dan, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, all from the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigns your food and your drink. Why should he see that you were in worse condition, that the youths uh, were in worse condition uh, than that of my own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said, uh, said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servant for 10 days. Let us give vegetables and eat, uh, eat and water to drink. Then let, uh, let us appear uh, let that our less appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So those stewards took, took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, the kings had commanded that they should be brought in. The chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all, all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah. 
Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lee. Well, who's excited for Daniel? Woohoo. You can have a little more enthusiasm than that. Who's excited for Daniel? Oh, there we go. I've been super excited, which means that this sermon's going to be like five hours just to warn you. Because I've been studying, I've been ramping up so much to get into this series, and I have been absolutely so excited for this series. And so we are looking at the book of Daniel. The subtitle is A God in Control for a People Who Are Not. And really we're looking at this theme of Daniel who's sent to this land of uh, Babylon. And he realizes as in different context, he's going through all these things that are foreign to his culture, thrown into a completely foreign environment, and yet he realizes that God is sovereign, God is faithful, God is in control of it all. So it's this beautiful book. And I have found it very interesting uh, because from a cultural perspective, Uh, Daniel is written in the context of Babylon, and in our own context, there is a movie that just came out called Babylon. Has anyone heard of it? Yeah, and it's a very fascinating movie. It's basically uh, our culture adaptation of the worship of Babylonian culture, so to say, where indulgence is worshipped, and sexual exploration is worshipped, and um, power and money is worshipped. And I I was fascinating that I heard about this movie, and so I looked into it. I'm not going to watch it by any means, but uh, Brad Pitt's in it. And they interviewed him about what it was like to film this movie. And he says, I've been in Hollywood a long time, and yet there were even things in this movie that sort of made me uncomfortable and blew my mind. And it's this realization of Babylon is really this concept of how do we stretch the boundaries as far as we can as humanity apart from God. And so I thought that was interesting as we start this series, we literally see our culture around us worshiping this ideal of Babylon, so to say. And so in light of this, we have a lot of questions we need to answer as the church. Well, well, how do we live in this current context, in this current society, in a place that worships the idols and ideas of a place like Babylon? And how do we remain faithful to a God in a world that has rejected Him and abandoned Him? And so that's really what we're going to be looking at this morning. I'm going to jump right into it because there's so much to go through this morning. There's so much richness in Daniel. And so we're going to be looking at Daniel 1, and the theme is exile in Babylon. And those are the two major themes that we see occur out of Daniel. And so Babylon, what are we talking about? Are we just talking about a city, or are we talking about so much more? Well, Babylon was a city and a culture and a context which Daniel was taken into, And the Greek uh, historian Herodotus, around 450 B.C., said this about Babylon. It says, Babylon far surpassed 
any other city in the known world. In other words, it was sort of the epitome, the top city of the world. And Babylon was really known as the top civilization in the ancient world. At the time, it was the largest city. It was around 2,500 uh, 2, acres. It had walls that were 80 feet thick, 320 feet high. So a crazy fortress. That's high even by today's standards, right? That's high by Donald Trump's standards, right? <laughs> right? So it's crazy. You would never uh, be able to penetrate that city, but you would enter into that city through a gate that was named after one of the many Babylonian gods. And yet, when we hear Babylon from a, a scriptural perspective, when we read through about Babylon through the narrative of Scripture, even though it's celebrated in that culture, is it something that is celebrated in Scripture? No. Should it evoke positive emotions when we hear Babylon or negative emotions? Negative emotions. Now, why is that? Well, Scripture has this concept of Babylon as much more than just a city. Babylon actually represents an archetype. It's a theme throughout Scripture. And it's this archetype, it's the description of kingdoms of humanity opposed to the kingdom of God. And it's a description of humanity's desire to live apart from the rule and reign of God. And so think of the origin story of, of Babylon. We go back to Genesis 11, and we've been walking through Genesis in our Sunday school class. And Genesis 11 is about the story of what? The Tower of Babel, right? The Tower of Babel. Now, now what was the purpose? What, what was the desire of Babylon? It was this concept of the celebration of let us build ourselves a city, a tower that reaches where? Towards heaven. In other words, this is all about humanity's elevation of self. Humanity's elevation in disregarding the role and rule of God in His creation. And so that line, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. In other words, let us make ourselves God. This is the motif of Babylon. This is the archetype of Babylon. And this is the thread that runs through all of Scripture in regarding Babylon. And so even we see this indication in Genesis from the Tower of Babel. And then we come to the end of the book of Revelation, which is the end of the Bible. And it's still talking about Babylon. And it's talking about Babylon, not just as a city or a state, but it's this culture. It's this worldview. It's this global economy based on trade and commerce and injustice and slavery and luxury and affluence that is counter-cultural to the purposes of God. And so in the New Testament, the early Christians use this language of Babylon as a code name for things that are against the kingdom of God. And Babylon becomes the whole world system in opposition to Jesus. So it's a city, yes, here in Daniel, but I want us to understand that as we read through the story of Daniel, it's much more than just a city. It's an archetype. It's a theme of Scripture that deals with humanity's rebellion against God. 
And so we see in this story, we have some Israelites dragged away to, of all places, Babylon. And they become what are called exiles, which is the second major theme of Daniel, an exile. Exile is a major theme in Daniel, and exile is a major theme in Scripture. So exile, what does that have to do with what is going on in Daniel? Well, exile in Scripture has everything to do with the experience of knowing that this world and this nations that live in it and the cultures that we have and the core values of humanity run contrary to the purposes and will of God. And we find these people um, in exile here at the beginning of Daniel. Why? Does anyone know? Why is Israel sent into exile? This is an act of disobedience. It's an act of judgment against God. Because the Israelites, they were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to teach about God's mercy and God's justice and God's love and God's generosity. And God kept warning them over and over again, you guys are not fulfilling this calling. And if you're not going to fulfill this calling, I'm going to hand you over to injustice. I'm going to hand you over to a place in society that's completely counter to my will and desire. And so God says, you better stop, you better listen, you better pay attention, you better return from idolatry, worshiping other things other than me, or you will be sent into exile. And we see injustice continue, and God takes away His hand of protection, and just within a few years, Israel is now found in exile in Babylon. Now, as we dive more into the story of exile in Daniel, uh, I want us to imagine what is truly going on here. Because when we get to the layers of what Daniel and his friends are experiencing, um, it becomes a greater sense of the heartache and pain that they were going through. So I want us to imagine quickly uh, I want us to imagine that we are a young Jewish boy, or maybe a young Jewish girl if it's easier for you, and imagine that we're about 13 to 15 years old. And so if you can remember that far back in your life, then good on you. Now imagine you're smart, you're intelligent, so that might be pretty easy for somebody to remember. From others, it might be harder, we'll see. You're smart, you're from a good family, you're from nobility, which means you have status. And all of a sudden, for all sorts of reasons, you are ripped away from your land. You are ripped out of the upbringing you were promised. You are dragged away from your parents. You're dragged away from your family, from your home. You're dragged away from your place of worship, the temple, where God's dwelling is in Jerusalem, and you're dragged off to all places, Babylon, which you as a young Jew would know is much more than a city. It's an archetype. And you are aware that throughout all of the, the story of the Torah, that 
The story of Babylon is one filled of open rebellion against your God. It's a culture and society that's totally hostile to you and your faith. It's pagan to the core. And sexual immorality is celebrated. Injustice and oppression are the norm. Opulent wealth is all over the place. And your God is mocked. And that was part of what Lee read for us is we read that some of the vessels from the house of the Lord were taken from the temple and they were taken to the place of the Babylonian gods. And this is basically a way of saying that we didn't just defeat you as a nation. Our gods defeated your gods. And so Yahweh is mocked. And so you, as a teenage kid are put into a three-year cultural immersion program designed by social engineering to completely erase your faith in your God, to get you to completely accept the Babylonian values, and to completely indoctrinate yourself with culture. It's quite a lot that's going on here, isn't it? And so we have this description of, of four young men here, and they're described... Interesting enough, as good-looking and smart, healthy, they're athletic, they're the best of the best, so to say. Sounds like the perfect husband, doesn't it, ladies? But I have a warning for you here. There's, there's a deep loss that these young men also experience. Because verse 3 tells us that they were put under the charge of the chief eunuch, which means that they would have also been made eunuchs which means that the promise they had as young boys to have families was quite literally crushed. Any hope of a future offspring or a family produced were also taken from them. Not only was that taken from them, we read that Nebuchadnezzar had their names changed, and their names were changed from names that reflected the beauty of Yahweh to names that celebrated these pagan gods. And so Daniel means that God is my judge. And Daniel's name was changed to Belshadar, which means Baal protects the king. Hananiah's name meant God is gracious. And his name was turned into, does anyone know? Shadrach which means under the command of a coup, the moon god. Mishael, there is none like God, very similar to Micah, which means there is none like God. His name was turned to Meshach, which means that there is none like a coup. Azariah means that God has helped me, and his name was turned to Abednego, which means the servant of Nebo, which was the Babylonian god of wisdom. And so, again, these young boys are watching as their homeland is invaded, their families killed, their temple desecrated, their God mocked, their future as husbands and fathers are destroyed, and their names are changed to give praise to foreign deities. That is the context in which we read about the story of Daniel. Now, can you imagine how gut-wrenching that would have been? 
Can you imagine how much despair and grief you would have been going through at this point? Can you imagine how much doubt would have been permeating your mind? Can you imagine how much you would have doubted the goodness and faithfulness of God as everything in your world is absolutely crumbling around you and your very future is stolen from you? Like, how in the world do you survive that? How in the world do you come out of that still trusting for God to be faithful? And the question that comes is, how is God going to respond? And how is Daniel going to respond? And so I want to look at the, the first main test of their faith then. And the main test of their faith comes from verse 8. And so you have all this backstory of what's going on in the life of Daniel and his friends. And, and the question that Daniel brings up is, are they going to trust God to be faithful? Or are they going to give in to the culture of Babylon? So we see they've been given new names They've been educated, so to say. They sort of have a PhD in Babylonian culture and society. Um, they're provided for. They've um, been very successful, so to say, moving up the ranks in the king's um, um, palace. But they draw the line somewhere. And, and here is where we see Daniel draw the line. Verse 8. It says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And so, we see this stance that Daniel takes, this stance against the Babylon culture. Now, I find it fascinating. I mean, this passage has been used in a variety of ways, uh, this passage has been used by vegetarians to say that this means that vegetarian is the most holy um, <laughs> way to live. Uh, there's been things like the Daniel plan, which sort of takes this premise of how this is a healthy lifestyle to live, but really it has nothing to do with any of that. Uh, this is all about Daniel's trust in the faithfulness of God. This is all about Daniel not willing to become indoctrinated in the sense of being overwhelmed and overcome and overtaken by Babylonian culture. And so, what's going on here? What is the controversy around this food? Is it really just about food? Now, the most basic way, there's a few ways to understand this, the most basic way to understand what Daniel is making a stance against is that perhaps the kind of food that they were serving was defiled, in the sense that it would have put them at odds with the dietary restrictions of a Jew. But they chose no wine as well. And there was nothing in the Mosaic kosher laws against wine. So that's not really fully what's going on. Uh, another possibility is it might have been the way the food was used. It's possible that the king's taken was taken and sacrificed to Babylonian gods. In this case, it wasn't really about the food then. It was about idolatry and worshiping something that has been used to bring praise to Babylonian gods. Uh, the third option of what's going on here is, is it's a matter of whose food it was. 
The sharing of a meal meant fellowship. It meant unity. It meant association. And fellowship with this pagan king was obviously a problem. And so it could be that the resolve and resistance was really about not wanting to be in fellowship, in a sense, with this pagan king. And so there's a lot of what's going on here and a lot of to understand of what are they making a stance. And I believe a key part in understanding what's going on here is that Daniel and his friends, they didn't just revolt and rebel and did whatever they want. We actually see them doing something very interesting. We see that Daniel asked for permission. Isn't that interesting? It says, therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And so I think this has a lot more to do when just food. This has everything to do of asking the question of where does this lifestyle lead? In other words, I don't think it was necessarily the possibilities there, but I don't think it's necessarily that there was something sinful in and of itself of just eating the food. Again, Daniel asked for permission. But this is more a concept of Daniel not willing and desiring to be fully incorporated into Babylonian culture. It was this question of where does this lifestyle truly lead? And we know that Daniel and his friends would only know for certain what the rebellion would be against and the desire to not infiltrate the Babylonian um, priorities into their own life. But my conviction is that Daniel and his friends refused the food because it was part of this rich, luxurious culture assimilation of Babylonian of engaging in fellowship with the king. And they realized that if they were to continue in this lifestyle, it would open up all these temptations and all these things that would become idolatrous in their lives. And they would find themselves worshiping something other than Yahweh. And so we realize then the statement of Daniel is saying, you have all these promises of indulgence, you have all these promises of satisfaction, you have all these promises of enjoyment in life, but I'm going to trust God to meet my needs. I'm going to trust God that he will be faithful and provide and strengthen us even in exile. And so, what's the response? How does, again, God respond to this situation? It says, and God did what? He gave. That's a very important phrase in chapter 1, and God gave. We'll see it three times in chapter 1. God gave. So the question of what is God doing in the midst of exile is God is giving to his people, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And so the eunuch says, we're going to test it out. You're going to eat like a vegetarian, not drink wine. Um, let's see how you come out on the other side. As you're standing beside these built men probably having a thousand pounds of protein a day, right? Just getting bulked up and saying, let's see how you fare against these guys. And at the end of 10 days, what do we see? That Daniel and his friends 
were just as healthy. And so God does this beautiful act of faithfulness, of sustaining, sustaining Daniel and his friends' bodies. And so again, this is this concept of God gave. It's all about God's faithfulness towards Daniel, even in the mix of exile. And so God gives. We look later then at Daniel 17, we see even more so of this beautiful act of God. It says, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning so Daniel could understand dreams and visions. And that becomes very important as we continue in the next few chapters. It says, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chiefs of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none of them was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them how many times better? Ten times better than all the magicians and the encanters that were part of the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And so right in chapter 1 here, we have this bracket then. Uh, of verse 21 it is telling us that King or uh, Daniel was established in the Babylonian culture for over six decades. For six decades as he was here. And we would see many Babylonian kings come and go, and Daniel would outlive each and every one of them. And God would equip and God would give, as Daniel 1 keeps reminding us, Daniel and his friends to stand before multiple kings, multiple kingdoms, not only Babylon, but the Persians that would come, and they would pronounce the wisdom of God and they would be the influence of God into that culture and society for the Babylonian culture. And so we, we see this, this beautiful message then come out of Daniel is, is this reality that kings and kingdoms will come and go. Rulers of this world will rise and fall, but God will remain faithful through it all, and the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom, amen? Amen. The kingdom of God is one that outlasts all kingdoms of this world. And so there's the story down. There's so much more in chapter one that I could bring up, but we're going to be processing a lot more of the chapters to come. But I, I want to bring it to our context. And the question is, well, how do we live, so to say, as exiles in Babylon today? How do we live in light of this? How do we live in a post-Christian Canadian context that's very much like Babylon? Now, I think to answer this question, we have to get a sense of where we're at as a church in our culture and society. And you guys know I love history. I teach history. I spend a lot of time in historical studies. And Mark Knoll is one of my favorite historians. And he's a phenomenal historian that wrote on the history of Christianity in America and Canada. And he makes the argument, I mean, we often think of America as a Christian nation, so to say, or a history of Christian nation. But he says this, he says, Canada has an even better objective argument for being a Christian nation. And again, a Christian nation is, in other words, built upon the Christian worldview. 
Then does the United States. If believers want to find a more convincing history of a Christian America, they should look to Canada. Now, isn't that interesting? Because does it feel the same way today? No, not at all, right? It's a completely different worldview. It's a completely different environment. And yet, our context in Canada is absolutely different. Now, what are some of the reasons for that? We have um, the culture of Babylon even celebrated in North America. We have very much a context that we as the church are not on the centrality of the world and culture anymore. We're not a majority in our culture anymore. We are definitely a minority. And the first time ever in our history as Canadians, we are minority. We are outside the center, so to say. Obviously not the first time in church history, but in our Canadian context. Now, how did all this happen? I find it fascinating that that Daniel in exile, the main calling that God had for him was to do what? What do we read him doing in verse 8? He resolved. He had convictions that he held to. And in our Canadian context, it's it's fascinating to me when we read the history of the mainline churches, when we read of the story of the Anglican Church of Canada, when we read the story of the United Church of Canada, both of which were the prominent, most populated uh, church um, movements in Canada, are now virtually at the edge of death. And the Anglican Church of Canada even believes it will cease to exist in about 10 years. So how do you go from millions of believers running um, a populated Canada, overtaking culture and society, and yet just a few years later, almost becoming on the verge of death? Same with the United Church of Canada. Well, we read... Fascinatingly enough, from movements like the United Church of Canada, the Anglican Church of Canada as well, is that they deeply were assimilated into the secular worldview, weren't they? When the 1960s came and secularism went on this massive rise in Canada, sadly enough, the churches, the mainline churches went with it. And so instead of resolving for truth, Instead of fighting for the gospel, we find these church movements becoming um, universal in the sense that Jesus is no longer the way of salvation, that many faiths and many beliefs can be accepted. We, We find these movements completely abandoning Christian sexual ethics and not only welcoming any sexual ethic into the church, but even ordaining We see a complete rejection of the core truth of the gospel that Jesus has come to save sinners and turn into a self-help. You are good and you can strive for good in and of yourself. We see all these things happen in the Canadian church context where they did the exact opposite of Daniel, which was to be resolved to truth and understand that God is faithful even as culture completely shifts and abandons the truth of the gospel. And so I want some of that reality of the cultural moment we're in to sink in. 
We're part of a story in the Church of Canada right now, and that story right now is extremely grim. The story is completely saddening. And I, I know some of you are already um, connected with some of that history, some of you figuring it out, but we have to realize where we are in this cultural moment as the church. And it's okay to realize it because God is faithful in it. God is in control. And I even believe that God is calling us to something beautiful in this next season as a Canadian church because we're in this new cultural moment and exile can actually be a beautiful moment for the church, amen? We, we see this in the story of Daniel so prominently. It's, it's where God was active and moving and where God was transforming the world wasn't necessarily in Israel anymore. The people who were under the will and purposes of God were those who were exiled in Babylon. And that is where God was active and working to bring transformation for the, the, the people of God. And it's the same for us today. There's so many good things that can come out of a place of exile. There's so many good things that can come out of the culture of Babylon. So how do we respond? If, if we consider ourselves exiles in many senses in this context, in this cultural moment, and if we consider the, the Babylonian worship of the culture around us and the values that are completely antithetical to the, the wisdom and purposes of God, how do we live in this cultural moment? Well, guess what? Thankfully, Scripture gives us an answer to that. Any guesses where we have a letter to the people in exile in Scripture? Jeremiah 29. Mike already knows it. We've already talked a lot about it, so good job. <laughs> Jeremiah 29. It's this beautiful passage written by Jeremiah. And it's specifically written to the people of God so they know what to do as exiles in Babylon. Because the temptation for the, the people of the Old Testament, even for us today, is we say, oh, here's Babylon. Here's a culture that's completely against the will of God. It's an archetype for anti-kingdom. And so we reject it. We push against it. We run from it, whatever we do. But Jeremiah says, no, you have a calling. You have a purpose as the people of God in exile. And so this is the text. Now, if you have time, read 1 to 14. There's a lot here, but I'm just going to focus on a little small snapshot of Jeremiah 29. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Right? Completely matches the cultural context of Daniel at this moment. This is what he instructs them to do. He says, Build houses and live in them. Now, what's the temptation when you're sent to a foreign land? You're longing for home, aren't you? You're longing to go back. You're longing to return. You're longing to go back to your homeland. But Jeremiah says, no, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce, which means what? You're going to be there for more than one season. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and gives your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons. In other words, now we're talking about multi-generational. Multiply there and do not decrease. And here's the key part. But seek the welfare of the city 
where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now again, think of what Daniel and his friends have went through. If that happened to you, the last thing you would be thinking about is how do I bless these people? How do I seek their welfare? The only thing that would be on my mind is revenge, is retaliation, is to push against and fight. And yet what do we see the command of God to those in exile in Babylon to do? Pray for these people, bless them, seek their prosperity, seek what is good for them, pursue what is good for them. It's quite a wild concept, isn't it? And I love how Eugene Peterson, he sort of summarizes it like this. He says, you are in Babylon for a long time. That's what God is telling them. You better make the best of it. Don't just get along waiting for some miraculous intervention. Build houses, plant gardens, marry husband, marry wives, have children, pray for the wholeness, in other words, the shalom of Babylon, and do everything you can to develop that wholeness. The only place you have to be human, to live out your calling of human, is where you are right now, which is exile. Being where we don't want to be with people that we don't want to be with. Hope you're not feeling like that this morning. But it forces a decision. Will I focus my attention on what is wrong with the world and feel sorry for myself? Or will I focus my energies on how I can live at best in this place I find myself? It's always easier to complain about the problems than to engage in careers of virtue. Amen? Isn't that key for us to grasp? Isn't that so key for us to get our mindset around? Especially in our cultural worldview today. It's so easy to complain about the problems of culture and society, but what we're called to do is to be people of blessing, to be people of shalom, of people who seek the goodness of those around us. And so I have a couple final closing, closing thoughts. I knew I could preach long because it's potluck, so you can't get mad at me. <laughs> there's, there's a lot I could say here, but I just want to bring up four quick points as we end. What is the calling? How do we actually live as exiles in Babylon? How do we live in our current cultural climate in Canada today? How do we live as Entwistle Community Church with the culture and people around us? Well, first of all, we seek to bless not seeking to escape. We seek to bless. And and the reason for that is because God has given us as the church the ability to bring so much beauty and blessing into the world around us if we follow Him in doing so, if we trust Him in doing so. Living with the mentality to bless to bless our community, to bless the people around it, not to complain about it, not to slander it, but to teach us to be a presence of blessing. The second thing, and I think this is incredibly important, we humbly deal with our own sin. 
Why do I say this? Just as was true for the exiles, the situation we are part of in Canada right now with this cultural climate is due to the part in the sin of the church, right? A lot of the circumstances we find ourselves in today in our Canadian context is due in part, probably even mostly, because of the sin of the church. And we want to blame everything around us. We want to talk about the rise of secularism, which is true. We, we want to say and point all the fingers to the political engagements that's going around us. But at the end of the day, a lot of it is dealing with the sins of the church, which is deep in Canadian culture and history. The sin of the church is so evident when we look to the residential schools, when we, when we look to the apathy to engage with the secular worldview, when, when we look at so many of the cultural trends that are accepted, when we look at the sinful things that have been accepted throughout the church in Canada, this is to me one of the most primary things that we need to do as a church. And, and because church history, again, I'll try not to rant too much about church history, but again, I love it. Church history always shows us that whenever Christianity wins the power struggle, whenever it takes the top and is supported by that power structure, guess what happens to the church? It becomes what? It becomes corrupted. It becomes idolatrous. And only a lass of power which God uses as judgment through the theme of exile that we see. Only through a loss of power is the church humbled, is the church purified. And so we, we must be harder on ourselves in gracious, humble repentance than we are as, as hard on ourselves far much more than we are hard on the culture around us. That's key for us. This was a major lesson for the exiles. It must be a major lesson for us as the church. And so in light of that, we influence with character instead of infiltrating with power. And there's so many movements in the church today that I see in our Canadian context that just wants power back. That's antithetical to the gospel. It's not about a kingdom of power. It's the kingdom of God. We, we don't fight for power. Even uh, pay attention to, to Daniel. I mean, it's so fascinating to me when, when Daniel conducts himself in captivity and when he's engaging with the culture around him, when he resolves himself not to eat and defile by the king's food, he doesn't broadcast his defiance with some act and show. He doesn't step into this rebellious mode of demanding the king hear his rights or demanding that the king pay attention to him or demanding that he has a place of power and prestige. Instead, he respectfully approaches the Enoch, the eunuch. And he holds his convictions, but he does it in humility, doesn't he? He does it in patience. He does it in trusting God's faithfulness. And so he's not confrontational in the Babylonian culture, which would have been a very confrontational world. And he doesn't engage this culture war because he understands that even though he is in exile, 
God is not in exile. That God has been faithful and will continue to be faithful. Amen, church? That's key too, very key in this season. Now, finally, let me close with this. We live with resolve, trusting in the faithfulness of God. We live with resolve. We, we live with conviction. We, we live with a mentality that we will not compromise on the gospel. We will not compromise on the truth. Whatever cultural trends may be going, whatever uh, things that are against uh, Christianity that are moving towards and taking a prominence role, we will not compromise to the gospel. We will not compromise. And so I, I want to close just, just with a meditation around. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads as we, we get ready to close. But, but even in this concept, resolve is such a key theme in chapter 1 of Daniel. And, and I just want to bring this to a practical individual level at this point. And, and as you bow your heads, I, I just invite you just to sit and acknowledge the presence of God to enter into conversation with Him. And I want you to enter into conversation with God and ask the question, where have I been tempted to compromise? In other words, what are the things in my life, what are the patterns, what are the habits in my life that I know against the purposes and will of God? Just enter into that conversation with God. What are the, the temptations that I have to compromise? Start listing some of those things. And then ask God, what are the things that I have compromised on that I need to confess? What are the things that I have compromised on that I need to confess? Maybe it's a money issue. Maybe it's a consumerism issue. Maybe it's a gossip issue. Maybe it's a slandering issue. Maybe it's as Don reminded us, not seeing people who, who they fully are. Maybe it's an integrity issue. Maybe it's an issue with lies and deceit. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's just a rejection of Jesus' teaching as opposed to your own desire for what is true. Pray to God about those things. Ask Him to reveal them to you. And in light of these things, God, God will re reveal a a sense of true guilt. A true guilt that only He can deal with. A guilt that He can take away. A transformation that can come from Him. And now I invite you just to ask God, just that you would pray, God, make me a man or a woman of resolve. Pray that you would know God's truth and that you would live in it. 
recognizing that when we live with a godly resolve, we become most useful in this world. As we experience transformation, we can transform the world around us. Let's pray together now. Gracious God, we come before you examining the question, how do we remain faithful to you in our current cultural climate? And we realize that much of it has to do with conviction. Much of it has to do with seeking the truth. But Lord, we know the majority it has to do with your faithfulness. That even in exile, even in Babylon, you give. You give and you give and you give. And in seasons where we feel like we don't experience your goodness, in seasons where we are overridden with doubt, in seasons where we feel like all hope is lost, in seasons of grief and despair and loss, you remind us that you give. You give yourself. You give the peace of your presence. You give faithfulness to who you are and what you're accomplishing. You give us a love and a mercy and a grace that we do not deserve. And you give us a hope for the future even when all things feel lost. And you invite us in a mission where you give us the power to see it through. And so, Lord, we pray that you would remind us here today of your faithfulness to us, of your goodness even in the, the seasons of hardship for the church and a season of reminding that you are faithful and you have called us as your people to this time, to this place, to see your shalom, to see your blessing spread throughout the world. May we pay attention to your leading and guidance in it, and may we be faithful to you, our faithful God. We thank you, Jesus.